Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Urbanist Agenda, the podcast where two Canadians politely complain about the police. This is Jason from Not Just Bikes, and with me today, my co-host is Reese from RM Transit. You want to introduce yourself, Reese? Yes, my name is Reese, and I make videos about transit. So that's <laughs> the name, RM Transit. It's creative and original. Just tell you like it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a wonderful channel about transit all over the world. But in particular, I wanted Reese to be here because he lives in the great city of Toronto in Canada, where I also used to live and probably the place I've lived the most in my adult life, I believe, although I'd have to do the math. And specifically, I wanted to talk to Reese today about an interesting article that we stumbled across recently in the Toronto Star that says, the number of parking tickets has plunged in cash-strapped Toronto. Why the lax enforcement? So this is the idea that, uh, oh, links are always in the podcast description, of course, but this is the idea that it seems that the Toronto police have decided that uh, it's not really worth enforcing parking tickets anymore, or at least not very much. So what, what do you think of that, Reese? I mean, is it their job to enforce the law? Is that really in their mandate? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the amount of insane stuff you see in Toronto seems correlated with the amount of enforcement there is, which is zero. So there's a lot of madness when you go along a bike lane on almost any street, you see people parked in it because apparently all of the endless green pea parking lots, which are incredibly inexpensive, are not simple enough for people. I think the last time I saw you, Jason, we saw a police officer parked in the bike lane. That's right. I forgot about that. That's right. When I was in Toronto last, I went out with uh, Reese. I met up with him and we took a little walk around downtown. And yeah, sure enough, I think it was on, um, where was it? Gerard, I think it was, downtown at Young. Correct. There was a police officer just parked right there in the protected bike lane, blocking the whole thing. So that was nice to see. But it kind of level sets you where the Toronto police are with respect to, well active travel at all or any kind of travel that's not a car. Yeah, I mean, if you see them, it will be actively parked in the bike lane <laughs> or doing something. I mean, it's just unbelievable. The only time I seem to see police officers is when they are actively committing a road crime. It is never <laughs> in any other situation. Well, I think the really sad part is that there's a little bit of a trend here, right? Because I remember back when I lived in Toronto, which we left in 2018, but I remember reading a story about how the Toronto police used to have a dedicated traffic enforcement team that was running from around, I think it was 2003 till about 2013, I think it was. Um, but then they just stopped. They just basically stopped enforcing uh, traffic laws. And I really saw the effects of this when I was living there because we moved back to Toronto in 2013 and lived there from 2013 to 2018. And it was honestly, it was like bloody Mad Max on the roads there someday. I picked up a radar gun just to see. As one does. Like, <laughs> as one does, right? When you're constantly being run off the road or like, you know, you're walking through a pedestrian crossing and someone whips by you. I got a radar gun and I was just curious to check it out to see how fast these fast drivers were going. And I could take that radar gun out to pretty much any street and within five minutes, I could catch at least one person going double the speed limit. So that means like 60 and a 30, 80 and a 40, pretty often, actually. And yet, you know, never saw the police doing that. No, for sure. It's funny. Growing up in a rural area outside of Vancouver, I actually saw the police enforcing 
speed limits on city streets more times than I have seen it in Toronto, a city of, you know, in the metro area, like seven or eight million people. I don't think I've ever really seen the police actually out with a radar gun in Toronto in the over 10 years I've lived here, ever. That's probably correct. I don't think I've ever seen it either. And it's actually very, very difficult to get a traffic ticket in Toronto. Because first of all, you need to be unlucky enough to actually have a police officer who cares enough to do anything about it. I mean, encountering one is uncommon. You won't see them. It's absolutely true. Well, except they do have an awful lot of time. If you want to see a police officer in Toronto, go down to the middle of High Park, which is a a large park (laughs) on the west side of of Toronto. And uh, you are guaranteed to see a police officer there making sure that cyclists come to a complete stop at every stop sign in the park. Because, uh, you know, they have their priorities here, right? You know, one street over, every five minutes, there's somebody doing 80 and a 40. But, you know, I saw a cyclist run a stop sign once. They made a very sanctimonious TikTok about this, about how it's incredibly unsafe for cyclists to not follow the road rules and how they're endangering society. Meanwhile, if you go to any street in Toronto, the amount of And this is the thing that always confuses me about Toronto. It's supposed to be this auto city, right? Like it's car city, but people can't drive. There's no actual driving ability. The (laughs) amount of times where someone will, and this is almost a uniquely Toronto thing. I mean, like we've traveled around, right? And the amount of times people will fill the intersection and will block the crosswalks because they can't get through the intersection, which is like driving 101. Don't enter the intersection until you can exit it. And yet still, people don't you know, do the most basic things. Yeah, that's true, actually. In my crossing the street video, I went downtown to film some intersections of drivers going through red lights or turning right on red without even slowing down. And it was amazing how much gridlock I saw, especially if you go down to like Adelaide Street, Adelaide mm. and say somewhere on the east side, like Sherburn or that kind of area. And it's just, it's bonkers. It really is like on every light. One of the crazy things is that on every, almost every light, well, I would say every light that I, well, I was watching in rush hour, somebody ran the red light. Like that was very, very common. The question was not, will somebody run the red light? It was how many people would run the red light. And uh, the record uh, that I happened to see on that day was six. So the light went red and six cars went through the red light, which is a mind boggling. When I think I mean, about when I go other places in Europe, like that will never, ever happen. No, for sure. And I mean, there's this kind of built in tolerance people build up to it, you know, where you'll see people lining up for left turns and you'll have like five cars go through the left turn after yeah. the signal changes. And because everyone does this, it sort of ingrains in everyone that you have to do that to get through traffic because then they start blocking people going in the other direction. And yep. it's incredibly dangerous. And I mean, ultimately, too, it's crazy that, as you mentioned, there's all this red light running and there's like no red light cameras anywhere. I thought Toronto had red light cameras for a while. Were they taken out? We do have them. But I mean, like, I feel like the number of places I actually see them, it's just I can only think of places in the suburbs where I can think of red light cameras existing. But yeah, like along Adelaide, they should basically be at every intersection. Well, you know what's really bizarre? (laughs) That day that I went out, I mean, it's not bizarre. It's totally on brand for Toronto. But the day that I went out to film the Crossing the Street video, one of the things I caught on camera, it's in the video actually, but I saw it at a few locations, including on Adelaide that I didn't get on camera, but I saw it down at Front Street. The traffic was, of course, really bad. 
because it is in Toronto. You know, when you encourage people to drive, you make driving the fastest way to get around, the easiest way to get around anyway, it, you're going to get lots of cars. So the traffic was terrible. And so what they were doing is they literally had police officers at the side of the road, and their job was to make sure that no pedestrians crossed when the flashing hand came up. So they were making sure that there weren't any pedestrians in the intersection when the light went green so that all the cars could go. And meanwhile, you just go a couple of blocks down the road, and it's just as you said, it's gridlock and five cars running the red light to make the left turn. And they've got literally two cops at the side of the intersection making sure that pedestrians are crossing with the lights. And I'm not even saying like jaywalking or something, right? I'm talking the walking man for pedestrians, and then it goes to the flashing hand. And sometimes, you know, the flashing hand goes for like 10, 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. They were making sure nobody was starting to cross during the flashing hand. It's just stupid. I mean, the asymmetry of the way the Toronto police enforces, you know, laws is just mind boggling. The frequency of people getting hit by cars and killed or getting in car crashes and killed is abhorrent. And yet they don't seem to really care about that. But then you'll have them telling cyclists to slow down or, uh, you know, like, oh, I'm going to park at this stop sign on a side street and tell every cyclist, you know, give them a stern talking to because they didn't stop at a stop sign where there was no traffic. And yet, you know, drivers can really do anything they want. I mean, they can go, as you said, twice the speed limit and there's no punishment for it at all. And they're killing people en masse. It's insane. Yeah, pedestrian deaths have increased substantially in Toronto in the last 10 years. And it really does come from, I mean, it's exactly this. It's like, well, if it's basically a free-for-all out on the roads for anybody driving, well, it's going to be dangerous. And it doesn't even have to be a majority of people, even a small minority of people just driving twice the speed limit. And I do mean twice the speed limit. Like anybody listening to this, I mean literally twice the speed limit. This is not an exaggeration. This is like, I bought the radar gun. I stood there at the side of the road. I did it multiple times. It's twice the speed limit. And yet the police don't care. I mean, one, one of the other examples is that I used to work just off of Beverly Street near Queen and uh, Beverly downtown. And so I used to cycle down Beverly Street. And anybody who cycles there will know that there is a stop sign between Queen and College on Beverly Street. And there's a bike lane along Beverly Street. It's probably the only safe way to go north-south in that area because you wouldn't want to be out on Spadina. There's a lot of traffic there and parked cars. So a lot of people cycling are on Beverly Street. And they hit that stop sign, right? So people on bikes don't always stop at the stop sign at Beverly Street, which, fine. And the police are out there quite regularly ticketing cyclists who are not coming to a complete stop at that stop sign on Beverly Street. But... I went out there and watched it once because, like I said, it was just around the corner from my work. And the police were consistently ticketing every single cyclist that didn't stop, even though there were drivers who also didn't stop. Most drivers were not stopping at that same stop sign while the cops were there. They were ticketing every single cyclist and did not ticket a single driver for doing literally the same thing at the same location. There was one guy I watched on a bike who got pulled over, and he was saying, what about that driver right there? And that one, and that one. And the police officer was like, sir, we're not talking about them. We're talking about you. And he got really visibly angry about it. And the police officers, like a couple of them came over and were threatening him. And they're like, like, this is insanity. This is literally the way it works. It's like, if you're in a car, <laughs> doesn't matter what you do. You can do literally the same thing, but heaven forbid 
if you should be on a bicycle. Yeah, I mean, they have open disdain for cyclists. And I mean, can you identify a single stop sign where drivers actually stop? regularly. Yeah. Anywhere. I know, right? I went out, for example, I was near Davisville. Mm. And so there's Davisville and Duplex, I think it's called, which is just west of the subway station there. There's a little stop sign there. I think it becomes Oriole Park or something, but whatever. I sat there and watched that for a while. I filmed it and there's so few drivers who stop there. The only time a driver will stop at that stop sign is if there's another car in the intersection or sometimes if somebody's crossing, but that's only a sometimes. And if somebody is turning right in a car, there's no way in hell they're stopping. They just don't stop at all. Yeah, I mean, before I moved to Toronto, I feel like, you know, even in Vancouver, I was able to walk without really thinking much about what the adjacent cars were doing. But after moving here, I mean, every time you cross a driveway, every time you go through an intersection, even if you have a walk signal, you have to watch. Like, it's actually scary I was living in the annex until recently, and there is a place, and I believe it to be the case, where at this intersection, which is Christie and DuPont, DuPont being a basically a raceway. I mean, it's like Daytona 500 on DuPont Street. DuPont is a surprisingly terrible street, given that it's like quite, yes. you know, it's got traditional buildings along it. It should really be like a nice traditional street. But you're right. It is like a speedway. Yeah. And I mean, at this intersection, I believe it to be the case at least I've heard from several people, that someone was actually hit on the southeast corner. They were then put in a wheelchair. And then some period later, the same person was killed. The same person pinned up against the building at the southeast corner. So, And now they have like a metal rail, basically, along the edge, which is the only time you'll ever see any kind of bollards or protective, basically, railing in Toronto, is I guess where someone has been hit more than one time, the same person. And I don't know, it's just terrifying. Like you think about that, how are you supposed to go outside and walk? You literally have to have your head on a pivot. Yeah, it was actually really shocking to me after living in Toronto and then moving to Europe. It was like night and day. It was honestly like night and day from the pedestrian experience. And so recently I was visiting Oslo, for example. And it was amazing to me that all the drivers drove the speed limit. And this is one of these other really funny things that's kind of not even just a Toronto thing. It's kind of an Ontario thing. Mm. Like it's generally considered that if there's a speed limit, driving 10% over it or 10 kilometers, usually it's 10 kilometers per hour over it. Everyone considers that totally normal. Like that's cool. I would say even more. I'd say 20. Yeah, it's possible. And I've spoken to people about this when I was in advocacy in Toronto. And they would say things like, well, you know, radar guns, they're not absolutely accurate, so they need to have a little bit of leeway there, right? You can't be ticketing people for less than 10 over, because what if the radar gun's not calibrated? And I'm thinking, like, is this like 1968 or something? Like, radar gun technology is accurate down to, like, thousandths of a kilometer per hour here, right? Like, this is not a real problem. But I mean, what about all the drivers that are accidentally going 20 over the speed limit? I mean, I think it's really, it's inconsiderate, right? Like, we're polite, civilized Canadians. We're not going to punish someone for, you know, going 20% faster than they should be, right? I mean, 20 kilometers on a 40, what is that really? Right? You're only going 1.5x. <laughs> and it's so funny when I talk to, for instance, Australians about this. Like, so let's leave Europe aside, maybe, you know. You know, socialist Europe over here enforcing the laws. But let's talk about Australia, which can be quite car dependent as well. 
Australians will get ticketed for going one or two over the limit. Like, the limit is the limit. That's why it's called the limit. And that's perfectly normal there. But in Ontario, and especially in Toronto, like, that's not considered a thing. Like, the speed limit is like a suggestion. In fact, some people even consider it like a minimum. Like, if you are going less than the speed limit, holy crap. People are really upset about that. I mean, yeah, I've only driven in Toronto, I think, once or twice. But the two things that stand out to me are, one, yeah, if you're driving the limit, you will feel endangered because someone, even if you're in the far right side of the road, someone will come up right behind you and just be like five feet behind you. You will be unsafe if you do not drive faster. But then also you go to places like Brampton and I believe in Brampton, there is literally a case where you have kind of like a strode, essentially, where the design speed is like 120 and the speed limit is 60. And then it's like, well, yeah, I'm not surprised that people drive so fast when the lanes are twice as wide as the vehicles. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely (laughs) true. You know, honestly, though, now that we're getting into this conversation, I'm having like flashbacks to driving in Toronto. It is scary sometimes. Like, I remember we used to get an auto share car and go out of town every weekend. And in particular... Driving back into Toronto along the 427 as you pass the 401 is an absolute insane experience. And I really should like strap a camera to the car and show people what this like, because I think people in other countries would be blown away at what it's like to drive the 427 south by the airport. Because first of all, everybody's going 130, at least everybody. Mm -hmm. The other thing is there are constantly people who are weaving in and out of traffic. So this is where a couple of highways come together and it ends up being, I think it's like six or seven lanes or something like that. And then it splits into the QEW. Yeah, per direction. And then it splits into the QEW and the Gardner Expressway. So in between the 401 and that split to the Gardner, people are just like literally coming down at 160, 170, weaving in and out of traffic. And it is a really, really nerve wracking experience. I actually have like some horrible memories of extraordinarily close calls that I've seen on that stretch of highway. And there are crashes that happen there all the time. But again, nobody seems to care. (laughs) Nobody cares. It's crazy. And I can only imagine when, like imagine being a passenger in someone's car as they cut across four lanes of traffic going 60 over the speed limit. Like, how do you feel comfortable associating with that person? If it was someone (laughs) I knew and I saw them get out of their car, I would just be like, okay, you're not my friend anymore. Please never talk to me again. The thing is, though, is that the police don't care, as we've talked about (laughs) multiple times already. But it's also just so normalized. Like, it's just so normalized in Ontario that this is the way driving is. And of course you do that. And this is one of these other things that just would drive me nuts in Toronto, is that you'd have people who would complain about the cyclists speeding down the road or whatever, or going through the stop signs or whatever it was this day. And yet, when someone was speeding like that, if I was walking with somebody from Toronto and somebody went by, and it happened regularly, somebody went by at twice the speed limit, they'd be like, oh, ho, ho, yeah, yeah, you gotta be careful. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Like, shouldn't you be more concerned about this? Weren't you the person who was just literally telling me that these damn cyclists are going to get someone killed by slowing down but not coming to a complete stop at a stop sign? And meanwhile, somebody whips through at 60 and a 30 and you're like, isn't that crazy? I I mean, it's like the, I forget, it's like survivorship bias or something. But the reality (laughs) is that you're not living to tell the tale if you get hit by a car. I mean, if you get hit by a bike, you're pissed off and your afternoon sucks. But 
Yeah. If you get hit by a car, you're just dead. You're just gone. You're not complaining. So, of course, the people who survive being hit by a bike or who get close called by a bike, well, they're here to tell the story. You know, a car going at twice the speed limit, it just jumps the curb and disintegrates your body. Right. That's really depressing, but it's totally true. And it reminds me, so we went to a school in uh, Riverdale. My kids went to a school and one of the mothers there was killed by a car. And it happened because she had taken her car to the dealership to get winter tires put on Mm. early. It wasn't time yet, but she did it early. And then she had the dogs with her. So she took the dogs for a walk. I believe it was down Lawrence. And she was on the sidewalk and a driver who was going way too fast, lost control, crashed, went over the curb, through a bus stop and over a tree and hit her and she was killed instantly. And I'm like, this is somebody walking on the sidewalk, on the sidewalk. And, you know, the the, drivers are just going insane speeds. And the thing is, is that I think this is also a survivorship bias in a sense. So many people do this in Toronto. It's so normalized to drive faster than the speed limit. And people do it all the time. And most of the time, you're not going to kill anybody, right? But one of the things that really surprised me was I was reading an article a few years ago that was talking about how most people who end up killing a pedestrian have never had a crash before. And it's like, yeah, because this is not a case of it's a bunch of drunk drivers or it's a bunch of bad drivers. This is just everybody's going so fast. Eventually, eventually somebody's going to have that situation where things don't go right and they lose control of the vehicle because they're going too fast. Especially if it's an SUV or something, and you don't have the handling ability. And they can jump curbs very easily, right? I mean, those SUVs are meant for going off-road, so they can jump curbs very easily. This happened down near the CN Tower, down on Bremner, I think it is. Bremner? Bremner and Spadina. There was someone driving a Mercedes SUV, and they just went right up onto the curb and plowed right into... Uh, There was some stalls there. They were selling some things. And a woman who was standing there was killed. And when they interviewed this driver, she was like, oh, I don't know what happened. It just I just lost control. I'm like, we all know what happened, right? Like this person is driving too fast, too aggressively. They lose control of their vehicle and it's easy to jump the curb and kill somebody. And, you know, I saw it as well near where we lived on Broadview. I, I had been out the night before with the radar gun. And I came out the next morning and one of the lampposts had been knocked down. Someone Mm -hmm. had clearly been going crazy fast and jumped over the curb, smashed into a lamppost. You know, this stuff's never in the news. You don't see this in the newspaper because luckily nobody was there at the time, right? The amount of times you'll see like a street light or one of the poles they mount transit stops on or a bus shelter that's clearly just been like driven over by someone. It's like every day in in the city. And the thing that's perhaps even more crazy about all of this is just that, you know, there's no sense of responsibility when you step into your car. There's no sense of like, hey, I could kill someone if I drive in a dangerous way. And we don't design the streets in a way that pedestrians are safe either. Everything is designed to, you know, maximize safety for a driver if they screw up. But nothing is there to protect pedestrians. There are almost no bollards anywhere in Toronto. You go off the sidewalk in a car and you're just going straight into people. Yeah. Yeah, I remember actually that reminds me of there's a spot along Avenue Road, which, of course, is designed like a freeway. Like it is insane how wide that road is going straight into the center of the city. Right. I mean, that should not exist. Yeah. There's a section there where cars were going off the road 
regularly, like even multiple times a week. And the people who live there, because there are houses right by the road there at that segment, they were asking for something to be done, like to put a barrier or something in. And it was like this whole fight. Nobody had been killed there, right? But there had been a dozen crashes there in a year or two or something like that in the same location because it's where people are coming too fast down the hill there. But I think that also speaks to something else. Like when we're talking here about how the police don't enforce traffic laws in Toronto, the other issue is that in order to get anything installed, any sort of anything safety related, whether it be a even a stop sign or a, a traffic light or a bollard or anything like that, you have to go through the warrant system. Now, do you have any experience with the warrant system by any chance? I have none. I don't even know what that is. I would love to oh. yeah, I would love you to explain oh. that. Oh my God. This might have to be a whole other discussion sometime. So the warrant system is that in order to warrant having something installed like a traffic light or a speed bump or anything like that. You need to go through the steps. And actually, I'll have to dig it up sometime and show you the Toronto website has the sort of flow chart you have to go through in order to get this stuff installed. And traffic services have these minimums that they need. So, you know, in order for a, for instance, a crosswalk to be installed, there have to be a certain number of people hit by a car in a certain time frame. Like literally, it's written there. That sounds really stupid. Like, oh, we're not going to make the road safe until sufficiently many people are killed here. I honestly wish I was joking, but we went through this. Um, and, and there were a couple of times during our time in advocacy, my wife and I, there were a couple of times where the warrant system came up. There was one situation somewhere out near Scarborough where there had been some people killed by cars crossing what used to be like a residential street, but it was turned into like a four lane strode. Mm. Lots of traffic. And of course, this situation where there's a school on the other side of it, they wanted to put in a crosswalk. And the Warren system would say, well, on a street of this capacity with this many cars, we can't have more than, you know, this many meters between traffic signals because that would affect the level of service. It's literally like that. And so they would say, well, no, sorry, there's a traffic light 150 meters away and this is 127 meters away, so we can't install it. It's incredible how the engineers and policymakers at a transportation services or at an MTO, that's Ministry of Transportation Ontario, if you're listening. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how they care so much about the level of service and the car throughput and, you know, making sure the road is designed in the optimal way with the optimal gradient and uh, embankment and everything. But tons of people dying doesn't seem to matter to them. Like that number is irrelevant. But these right. really arbitrary numbers about car throughput and the road performance are just so important. It's insane. This reminds me of something that Chuck from Strong Towns has brought up before when he was an engineer. So when you have, you'll see this if you look at any, say, lampposts in the suburbs, they are built. So there'll be this big steel post, right? But they're mm -hmm. built with this platform that will have these four bolts on them. So they're these big, so huge bolts. Off. Yeah, so that they snap off so that if a car goes off the road and they hit one of these posts, it will break away at the bolts. So it's meant to be like insecure there so that it isn't a fatal crash for the driver, for the driver. who goes off the road and hits one of these lampposts. So they have put a lot of time and effort and engineering and cost to make these breakaway posts. But this is literally the post that the pedestrian beg button is connected to, right? But there is nothing done for those 
pedestrians, those people walking who might be on that same sidewalk, literally as nothing is done for them. But if the driver goes off, boy, they've got them covered. They've got them covered with breakaway poles. It's just clownish how you can imagine that you're doing a good job of something and you're like, you're optimizing for this very narrow set of factors. Okay, so if you're on the road in a car, we care about the system working well for you. But the second you step out of your car, you might literally park your car at the sidewalk and walk 20 steps to a business or something. You're no (laughs) longer within our jurisdiction and you are liable to die. You should return to your car immediately. And I mean, and you know how this stuff's reported when someone gets hit by a car, right? It's entirely a, well, you know. It's not, oh, they didn't get hit. They didn't get hit by a car. The car collided Yes. With, they may have jumped in front of the car. The language is the language is insane. It literally I read an article the other day that was something along the lines of person under car at such and such location. Person under car. Really? It's dehumanizing. And the yeah. journalists who write this, I mean, I think they're completely failing their duty to society to actually, you know, protect the public and you know, actually ask the difficult question. I want to think this happens less in Canada, but I definitely have experiences reading or just watching news in the U.S. where like someone will unironically report that like a person drove through a human being and they will say like the human collided with the vehicle or something along those lines. There's just no there's no sense of even questioning whether someone in a car driving was in the wrong. It really is shocking. And it happens at all levels here. Of course, we started this conversation talking about the police, but it really happens at all levels from the engineering to the enforcement to the reporting of how it happened. Every single level of this is in favor of the driver. So I was saying earlier in this conversation to bring it back a little bit that uh, it's very hard to get a ticket in Toronto because even if you are unlucky enough that that's the one day that the police officers are ticketing for, say, speeding instead of cyclists or pedestrians crossing incorrectly, you have to get caught. Then even then, people talk their way out of tickets all the time. The number of warnings that are given to drivers is shocking. And even if you get a ticket, even if your offense is that bad and you are (laughs) that unlucky... There's still organizations like ex-copper, right? Like, do you know what ex-copper are? Is that like a some ridiculous group of lawyers who defends criminals, essentially? Exactly, exactly. It's a group of people. It is their business to get people out Morally of Morally corrupt? <laughs> well, I yes, mean, they like... are. Ex-copper in particular was started by ex-police officers to get people out of tickets. This is the level at which the discussion is happening. Not just discussion, but like the implementation of road safety in Ontario is happening. That what there happened are organizations to Toronto like the good? Where people were supposedly <laughs> honest and civil, and now it's like, not only am I irresponsible enough, so egregious in my terrible driving, that I managed to get a ticket, but I'm not even willing to pay it. And again, right. the traffic tickets in Toronto are nothing, especially when you consider the cost of driving a car around everywhere. The tickets are, you know, a slap on the wrist is probably an overestimation of the amount of punishment that these tickets are. Yeah. So that actually brings us right back to these parking tickets that they're basically not enforcing anymore. If you exceed your time in a parking spot in Toronto, you get a $30 ticket. But most of the time your parking costs about 12 bucks, 16 bucks, something like that. So if you park regularly, why would you even bother paying? Because 
you know, if you pay your $12 a few times, you're much, much better off by the occasional $30 ticket, even if they were enforcing it back like they used to. Yeah, I mean, what is the chance? They'd have to be checking you every third time you parked. Exactly. Right? Like, they're just not. I don't ever see parking enforcement actually giving tickets. Like, yeah, it's warnings. It's all of this. And meanwhile, the city has no money. We have no money. (laughs) We're talking about, like, you look at the streets. I was on King Street a few months ago, and there was an actual crater. It was like a foot deep in the middle of the streetcar track. And this is the one place, of course, where cyclists can actually relatively safely go. And of course, that's the one place where there's a foot deep crater in the street that's going to kill someone, like if it wasn't filled. Yeah, it is really, really shocking. And of course, the property tax hasn't been raised substantially in Toronto in decades. They had this whole thing where they wouldn't even raise it to the level of inflation in cases. I'm guessing that the fines don't get raised, you know, to the level of inflation at $30, right? Which is unbelievable. Like it's I low, mean, but at least $30 is nothing. I know, right? So I'm reading here that if you park in a commercial loading zone, it's $40. And if you park in a bus parking zone, that's $150. Of course, again, you have to actually be caught doing any of these things. But do you happen to know what you're fined if you evade a fare on public transit on the TTC? I believe $425. Yeah, up to $425. Yeah, it ranges from $235 to $425. If you ride transit without paying your fare. It sounds like I should just drive, right? Like we know that having people take public transportation is so much better in so many ways than driving. So even if someone is leaving their car at home and is going out on transit, they might as well just drive because they're going to have to pay way more if they're a dishonest person on transit than if they're a dishonest person driving, (laughs) which let's be honest, I don't see many people on transit not paying, but when you're driving, literally everyone doesn't follow the law. And on transit, not paying, you know, we can debate it, but, you know, you're not really impacting anyone's safety. I mean, you aren't impacting anyone's safety by not paying. But by not following the rules of the road when you're driving, you will kill people. And they do kill people. And this is just our society's price that we put on it. It really is mind boggling. And really, so what does this all come down to? So if you had to guess, why do you think Toronto does this? Why do you think the Toronto police spend, you know, their time can easily justify standing around in High Park, you know, a a place with a 30 kilometer per hour speed limit in the middle of a park to ticket cyclists only slowing down for stop signs, but they can't spend the time enforcing traffic laws? Why do you think that is? I get the sense that police officers do not live in the same city as the rest of us. I mean, they literally may not live in the city, which I think is, you know, you might argue it's an affordability thing or something, but I believe our police officers are actually quite highly paid. I mean, they have cars, they they can often drive around. So, I mean, I would imagine it's just like, it's a, an inherent lack of empathy, which is really scary for someone who has a gun and a taser, you know, and pepper spray. They don't imagine what it would be like to be cycling They imagine that cycling is just something that leftist politicians have mandated the city must have. And so they need to make sure to punish the cyclists because they're getting in the way of everyone driving, which includes them. And it's just really screwed up. And the lack of empathy, you know, just it's everything you don't want in someone who you give a gun to. I I think that's a very fair point. And it is true, actually. I do remember reading an article that the majority of Toronto police don't live in Toronto which, of course, is part of the issue. 
I think also you can see from, especially from the Rob Ford days, that there is a driver entitlement, a level of driver entitlement out there. But also the fact that there's a lot of drivers in Toronto, especially in the suburbs. And uh, you see, this is one of these things that's amazing about Toronto when you dig into the data. You'll find people downtown. If you live and work downtown, then of the people who live and work downtown, about 50% of them walk to work, which is crazy. But if you go out to the suburbs of Toronto, there are districts there where literally 97% of people drive to work. So the mm. difference there, the difference there in the way people live is so drastic between the downtown and the suburbs. It's shocking. But the thing is, the suburbs are still today, at least politically, much more influential than the people downtown. And there's various historical reasons for that, going right back to amalgamation, actually, where the provincial conservative government specifically did that. It was one of the reasons that was rumored at the time. They did that in order to keep Toronto conservative. But the suburbs do politically control a lot of Toronto. And so I think just when it comes to it, it's the same reason why Toronto politicians don't want to go anywhere near property tax. Because if you look at the home-owning, driving suburbanites, the last thing you want to do is piss them off. So everything, everything, they are bending over backwards to service these people because they are the most influential voting bloc in the Toronto region. And I think we see that through all parts of Toronto politics and right through until the police enforcement as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's unfortunate that you have that huge disparity. And, you know, honestly, coming back to your point of, you know, the huge, actually really impressive modal split for walking, cycling and transit in downtown Toronto and like yeah. central old Toronto, given the insane drivers. You know, there may not be another city in the world where there is such a disparity between the number of people in the city center who use public transport and walk and cycle versus the number in the outer parts of the city. Like if you go to a Paris, people in the suburbs, they probably still take the train to work. But yeah. that's just not the case in Toronto. You essentially have all of these highways that link people into the city proper and funnel people downtown. And these are all people who are used to driving on roads designed for 120 kilometers per hour and with mm -hmm. lanes that are twice as wide as their car. And then they get to the old city of Toronto. And this is something that I found crazy. You always wonder why there aren't more trees on the streets in Toronto. It's literally because they just widened the streets into the trees. The trees were just removed to add lanes to the streets. Like, yeah. uh, you don't really see that in other good cities, unfortunately. You know, that reminds me of, I was looking at his, some historic photos of Toronto of uh, Jarvis Street. So Jarvis Street is today a five-lane road, and it has a center lane that switches directions for rush hour traffic coming in, and then in the afternoon it switches so that there's three lanes going out. So it's three lanes going in, and two lanes going out in the morning, and then three lanes going out and two lanes coming into downtown in the afternoon. This was the street actually that used to have bicycle lanes on it, used to have bicycle lanes on either side, and it was reduced from the five lanes to four lanes without the center thing, which causes crashes too, for what it's worth. That Those kind of ridiculous switching lanes are not a good idea. But um, so they had put bicycle lanes in it back. I think this is back in 2007, 2008, something like that. But when Rob Ford came in, one of the first things he did was tear out those bicycle lanes and put it back to the five lane setup. So Jarvis Street is very much a major throughfare for cars coming into downtown. That's the way it's set up. It's so interesting. You have those 
you know, center, like, um, I forget what the name is. It's like, yeah, directional switching lanes or whatever. Yeah. It just kind of shows you how rotten to the core a lot of traffic engineering is because you have this solution that just incredibly marginally increases the capacity of the road for cars, but right. massively increases the dangerousness of the road. Like, yeah. there's no cost benefit to this. It's so stupid. Well, this is the thing when you're an engineer and you're engineering in a very limited way, myopic way, you're optimizing for level of service. Everything else is irrelevant, right? Like you're optimizing for that one number of level of service. So what I was going to say is that Jarvis Street is this major thoroughfare for cars. And there's this social housing that's crumbling on the sides of each side of the road. These big homes that were turned into social housing and they've been underfunded for years. It's not a nice area at all. Nobody cycles there anymore, especially since the bicycle lanes have been taken out. You'd be crazy to. It's quite dangerous. There's not even a lot of people walking there compared to adjacent streets. Like if you went to Parliament, say, or Sherburne. But if you look at historical photos of Jarvis, those houses were literal mansions. It was a boulevard full of giant trees. It was honestly one of the most stunning streets in the entire city. And it is absolute and total garbage today. Totally garbage. And there are no trees, hardly any trees on it at all. And this is yeah. exactly what you were saying. I mean, I was thinking as I was laying in bed last night, this is a weird thing to think, but it is a very Toronto thing to think. I was like, hmm, I remember when I walked out of Paddington in London and I was walking down some streets in the West End and this, the trees were so big and they just, the way they canopied the street and it was so shady and nice and beautiful. And I was like, oh, if only Toronto had trees like that. You would never think that way. You would never think like, holy crap, I just wish we had more trees and like, a street with one less lane so that I could have trees. But in Toronto, downtown, they are gutters. Like the streets are gutters yeah. with cars and a slight space on the edge for the pedestrian. Yeah, And it's depressing, but it's also just visually so gray and gross and just ugh. Well, especially when you get the slush and snow in there from the winter and it just starts to turn black and icy from all of the debris from the cars. And it doesn't get put in a driver's lane. It gets put on the sidewalks, right? It does, yeah. That's what the sidewalks are for in winter. It, like, same with the bike lanes. Unless it's a bike lane, Reese. Come on, be fair. They will then put it in the bike, the bike lane. lane first. <laughs> well, of course, right? The cyclists, <laughs> cyclists are a lower class of citizen than pedestrians. Because that is true. everyone does have to walk from their car at some point. Right. So we can't be too harsh on pedestrians. And it was funny, like going back to I was saying I was in Oslo. It's also shocking there, the snow removal like they will. They and snow. I know that. Wow. <laughs> and, and it's similar. They do this in Montreal, too. But when they shovel the snow, they actually take it away. They'll like put it in a truck mm -hmm. and take it away. In Toronto, they'll just kind of push it to the sides and it doesn't matter how big it gets. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger in the bike lane and then eventually on the sidewalk. Heaven forbid there should be any snow in the car lane, but that snow doesn't get taken away. It just gets pushed to the sides. Yeah. I mean, it's so much easier to just shove it to the side and <laughs> then to actually go through this intensive procedure. Like when, yeah, in Montreal, it's impressive. They go at like 12 o'clock and they just start packing it into trucks and driving it away. And yeah. meanwhile, in Toronto, it's just like, how much salt can we put on the road? And where can we shove the snow into some small little residential street? It's so backwards. And I assume in Oslo, too, they probably heat a lot more of the surfaces. So it just melts. But of course, that would require building something, policy, infrastructure, 
which in Toronto, it's just like, why would we do that? We could just pay some giant snow plowing company to plow the snow onto the sidewalks. You know, actually, the thing that amazed me about Oslo is they do not use salt. And I assume there have to be some sort of regulations around this, but I never mm. saw any salt anywhere. They use grit, so small, like gravel, bit, little bits of stone. Mm. But that's it. And it's absolutely amazing coming from Toronto. I'm walking around going like, there isn't that like gross salt that's everywhere all the time. It certainly wasn't perfect there. There were some sidewalks that were gridded. And, you know, one side of the sidewalk may be perfect. The other side was a little icier than I would like it to be with the grit on it. Although I have to say the grit worked surprisingly well. There were some of these segments that looked really icy. And coming from having lived in Toronto, if I saw a sidewalk that looked like that, I'd be like, I am not going down that sidewalk because I know yeah. that nothing has been done to clear it. But then the grit really did help as long as you had winter boots on. But it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing to see the difference in winter maintenance between somewhere like Oslo compared to Toronto or really anywhere else in Ontario. Yeah. There's just a different level of priority that's put on making it safe and convenient for people who are walking or cycling or taking transit or whatever. You know, there I didn't see giant piles of snow piled at a bus stop, for example. And I mean, like, this is something that even drivers you would think would get behind because the snow is gross and ugly. And at the same time, the salt just destroys everything. It's yeah. terrible for the environment. It's terrible for everything it touches. It turns into like acid, essentially, and just destroys all of this asphalt, the concrete, everything gets ruined by it. And yet we just pile it on. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, <laughs> I suspect that you and I could complain about Toronto for several days so I think we might want to wrap this up at some point in time. Yes. Any last thoughts on parking enforcement or enforcement of traffic laws in Toronto? Yeah. If the city wanted to get serious about this, they would just start in like you don't even have to do human enforcement, because honestly, I don't know how I feel about giving the Toronto police who spend their time ticketing cyclists more money. Just set up cameras. And yes, I know. Uh, Toronto also apparently never, you know, it's so stupid. Our speed cameras, they put them on the sidewalk. So drivers can like tip them over, but they block the sidewalk as well. Okay, so there's this thing, Toronto, it's called a pole. You install a pole at the side of the street and then you put the camera on the pole outside of the way of pedestrians. And then you ticket drivers who go over the speed limit or run red lights and just put those you know, all over the city. We have like two per ward right now. So we have like 50 speed cameras. We should have like 5,000 speed cameras. It would probably solve a large portion of Toronto's budgetary issues. I think in one of the articles that will be linked in the show notes, it mentions like a drop in ticket revenue of like $40 million. Million. That's crazy. That's literally what we're just throwing away by not enforcing traffic laws. Fiscal conservative city. I know, right? Fiscal conservative city. And actually, one thing I do remember, I, them talking about doing speed cameras in Toronto, they have them very visible, very obvious, very easy to avoid. But one of the things I see done in Europe is they have what are called average speed cameras. So they're not the cameras we have in Toronto, where if it sees you going over the speed limit, you get a ticket. Because all that does is it encourages people to drive really fast until their app that they have tells them there's a speed camera or they see a speed camera, then they'll slow down for that little section and they'll speed up again. Or the sign. Yeah, right? They have signs. They have signs to say, <laughs> hey, you? hey, you better drive the speed limit here. 
But average speed cameras will have a stretch of road and they'll look at how fast a car is going when a car starts that segment and when they exit that segment. And if their average speed exceeds the speed limit, then the only way they could have got there that quickly is by speeding. And so that's when they get a ticket. And of course, that keeps people actually driving the speed limit, not driving twice the speed limit. And then when they see the sign or when their app pops up or when their radar detector pops up, they suddenly drive the speed limit for a short period of time. And again, going back to Oslo, when I was there, I was shocked at just how close to the speed limit everyone drove there because I was driving around Norway and people drive the speed limit there. Of course they do, because they know full well that if they don't, they're going to get fined. But we know in Toronto, if they don't, nothing's going to happen. So of course you're going to drive faster than the speed limit. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. I like this average speed camera thing, though. I like it. That's cool. The average speed camera is a great idea, and there should be more of it. I'm actually of the belief that we shouldn't even be doing speed cameras unless they're average speed cameras. Like, What's the point? Yeah, that's reasonable. So that's where two Canadians relatively politely complain about the police. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in, everybody. Uh, any commercials before we go? Uh, you want to talk a little bit about RM Transit or anything else you're doing? Yeah, I, I actually moved out of Toronto. So I'm here from time to time to cover transit stuff, but the insane housing market and lack of safety for actual humans instead of metal boxes has yeah. meant that I decided that I should look for greener pastures. So yeah, maybe I'm, I'm going to have to spend some time in Europe this year. So maybe I'll be in Amsterdam or Oslo or somewhere covering transit from a place that cares about the whole journey, not just the part from station to station. Well, I'd be happy to meet up with you if you're in Europe, so let me know. So thanks so much. Uh, thanks for joining in on the Urbanist Agenda today, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you so much for listening to The Urbanist Agenda. As usual, all new episodes will be available early on Nebula. So if you're not already a Nebula subscriber, now might be a good time. You can sign up at nebula.tv agenda. And with a subscription to Nebula, you not only support this podcast, you also get access to content by over 150 creators. That's everything from videos to podcasts to classes and more. Nebula is also constantly adding new Nebula originals, which are high-budget productions on a wide range of interesting topics. If you use our link, which again is nebula.tv agenda, you'll get a discount on a yearly subscription, which brings it down to only 30 bucks a year. I'm a big fan of Nebula, which is why all of my Not Just Bikes videos are available there, as well as some that are only available on Nebula, and of course, all episodes of The Urbanist Agenda. So if you're not already a Nebula subscriber, go check it out today. And thanks again for listening.